Grab your Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Are you guys familiar with the phrase, out over your skis? We use that phrase to describe someone who's getting a little ahead of themselves, someone who's out of their league, or like we say in the South, they're getting a little too big for the britches. Now, I'm not a skier, but you can imagine what would happen to someone who did get out over their skis. And let me tell you, that's how I feel today, because today I am preaching on marriage. And while, yes, I am happily married, right, honey, uh, I've only been married seven years And I know some of you have been married for many years longer than that. Uh, Let's just take a poll here. Anybody been married longer than 30 years in this room? Look at that. Isn't that awesome? Anybody longer than 40? Man, the first service, we went all the way up to 60. It was pretty amazing. But it's just awesome to see in our church how many long-tenured. I mean, you guys, you really stick with each other. No, it's great, though, and and that's kind of my point. I think (laughs) in a lot of ways we would benefit hearing from your wisdom than mine. I mean, you guys, I feel, are the experts. So today, I am really grateful for the Bible. I'm grateful for the Bible every week, but today I really hope you hear this coming, not from me, but from God's Word. And this is one of the great benefits of preaching through books of the Bible. You can't skip the hard parts. You don't get to pick and choose your favorite verses. We cover everything, even the stuff that we don't fully understand or feel fully equipped to teach. We believe in the whole Bible, so we need to hear from the whole Bible. But this raises another good point. When the pastor preaches on marriage, what if I'm not married? What if I'm single or divorced or widowed? What if I'm too young? Or what if, as the Bible teaches, I'm called to singleness? If that's you... Does that mean that you can just check out and go get a donut and play games on your phone during the sermon? Well, no, please don't do that. Let's remember that when Peter wrote this letter, he did, in fact, write it to the entire church. He didn't say, hey, this part right here, this is really only for you married couples, okay? No, this was written for the whole church, and when it was read, it would have been read to the whole church. Why? Why did Peter want everyone to hear about marriage? Marriage is a whole church issue because marriage is a gospel issue. One author I read, he said it like this. He said, marriage is a picture to the whole church of what it means to see Jesus and his people joined by the cross. Not everyone is called to marriage, but everyone is called to the gospel. Marriage matters then for everyone because marriage is not just about marriage. Marriage is about the cross. So that means it's all of our responsibilities, not just the married couples in the room, to uphold and to promote marriages that display the gospel. I said earlier, we are the family of God, and as a family, we are accountable to and responsible for one another, including how we relate even in our own homes. This is a gospel issue for all of us. So with that in mind, let's read Peter's instructions concerning marriage in exile. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external 
the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Amen. You can be seated. Now, there are several interesting things we just heard in that passage, and don't worry, we will get there, okay? But as always, it's important that we start by understanding the context. This letter as a whole was written to spiritual exiles. These were citizens of heaven living in a fallen world, so they're facing difficulties because of their faith in Jesus. They were outsiders. And you'll remember the first section of this letter was all about the gospel and how it gave believers a new identity. And then in the middle of chapter 2, Peter kind of pivoted. He began to get into the practical outworkings of being an exile. He began to share how exiles should live with and relate to this unbelieving culture around them. And he addressed three specific groups of people right in a row. First, we saw Peter address citizens and the governing authorities. Then it was servants and masters, and today it's husbands and wives. Why does Peter address these three groups specifically? Well, on one hand, these three groups constitute uh, the different three major areas of life. You've got society, business, and the home. But more than that, Peter is addressing these three groups because they each have something in common. They each find themselves under the authority and leadership of another. And because of their situations, they're facing certain challenges. As citizens, they're told that they're subject to a government that is evil and anti-Christian, yet they should honor the emperor. As servants, they are subject to masters that are unjust, yet they're told that they should follow the example of Christ. And as wives, they're subject to their husbands, yet some that don't even believe in Jesus, yet they should have good conduct to win them over. Do you see the pattern here? In each case, it's people who are under authority, often an unbelieving authority, yet they're honoring the Lord and they're winning people to Christ by the way they live. Peter's telling them that their situation is missional. And these situations function as examples for all of us. Because as exiles, all of us live in a hostile world. All of us are in a place of submission. And these examples teach us how to live in light of that. How to be an exile and yet be a good citizen in society. How to honor authority and yet honor the Lord. How to win people to Christ through the way we live. So it's very important that we see what Peter is doing here. That's why he spends six verses in this passage on wives and only one verse on husbands. It is not that wives need more spiritual work than husbands. I shall never say it. But the conduct, it's that the conduct of a godly wife is actually an example of how all believers should live as exiles. So let's walk through this text today. And as we do, I want to give you four principles we learn about marriage in exile. Look with me at the first two verses of chapter 3. Likewise. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, 
so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter challenges the wives in the church to be subject to their husbands. Another word the Bible uses to describe that relationship is the word submit. We see Paul in Ephesians 5 command husbands and wives in the same way. The only difference here is that Peter is calling wives to submit even if their husbands are not believers. This is similar to what he says about submitting to governing authorities. Submission is not based on the character of the authority or if that person's a believer or not. It's based on honoring the Lord. And let's not miss the difficulty of this situation. I personally know some women who are followers of Jesus, and yet their husbands aren't. And that's incredibly challenging for them. We recognize that. And in the first century, that would have been an even greater challenge because women were expected to automatically have the same religion as their husbands. For a woman to leave her husband's religion and follow Jesus would have been highly unusual and controversial. Others would have shamed her for that choice. Her husband might have even left her for that choice. So Peter is saying, hey, even for those of you who are in this difficult situation where your husbands don't believe, still you're called to submit. Why? Because through that, you might win them to Christ. Peter says they may be won without even a word, but by their conduct. The idea is that the husband would see the way his wife lived and the way she honored Jesus, and it would be attractive to him, and it may even cause him to want to follow Jesus as well. There's something so special and important about a wife who honors the Lord that it actually causes others to take notice. Why is that? Well, this brings us to the first principle we learn in this passage. Number one, submission is a part of God's good design. Here's why submission is so important and can actually cause others to believe. Because it testifies to God's good design. It's the way God intended and created marriage to work. But let's be honest here. This is not a popular concept. In the secular world and even in some Christian context, the idea of a wife submitting to her husband is viewed as oppressive. It's seen as part of this old patriarchal system that harmed women and we just need to move past these ideas like we did with slavery and other oppressive things in history. But the reason that we believe marriage roles are still binding and important today is because they are rooted in the gospel. They are exactly the way God designed them so that marriage functions as a picture of Christ and the church. This is what Paul teaches in Ephesians 5. He says in marriage, the husband loving and leading his wife is a reflection of the way Christ loves and leads the church. And the wife submitting to her husband is a reflection of the way the church submits to Christ. So submission, regardless of how popular or unpopular it may be in our culture, it's actually a good thing. Now, with that being said, as we've already seen, a wife's submission to her husband is not absolute. These women were not submitting in their religious beliefs. They, they were going against uh, the God of their husband and believing in the God of Christianity. So submission has its limits. We only submit fully to Jesus. 
It's also important to clarify that submission does not make the husband the dictator or master of the family. We'll talk more about the husband's role in a minute. But it does not justify physical or emotional or verbal abuse, which are absolutely sinful and evil in the sight of God. And look, we all know, wicked men have used these texts in the past to justify and cover up harm done towards women. Submission does not make women inferior or less than men. Women are not called to submit to all women. Broadly, women or or wives are only called to submit to their own husbands. So this doesn't extend beyond the home, but rather it's a picture of the gospel within marriage. At the end of the day, men and women, equal before God in value and worth, have been given different roles in marriage and the church. And this is a good thing because it's a part of God's good design. Let's keep going. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. It says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Peter continues speaking to wives here, and here's what he's saying. This is our second principle. Number two, a wife's worth, a wife's worth is found in Christ. The immediate question that some people wonder when they read these verses is, does this mean that women should not fix their hair or wear jewelry or makeup? Like you just got to roll out of bed, I guess, and stay that way? (laughs) The answer is no. That's not Peter's point, okay? The point is that women should not find their worth in those things. They should not seek to find their value in how they look or the cost of their wardrobe or anything external but on who they are on the inside. I told you before, I I grew up with four sisters. And I I did student ministry for nine years where I, I led middle school and high school girls. And one of the things I observed was the immense pressure placed on young girls to look a certain way. And there's no doubt There's a similar pressure on young men as well. But the messages that our culture screams at our young women are incredibly destructive. From early on in a girl's life, the world tells them that they exist to please men and how they dress and look. Social media reinforces these messages with likes and comments. I can't tell you the number of girls I've had in student ministry over the years who struggled with eating disorders and self-harm and a general hatred of themselves because they believed that they did not measure up to the world's standards. Man, it is so important that we teach and model for young people that their worth is not found in their body or how they look. It's not found on social media or the approval of others. It's not found in what they can afford to wear or afford to drive. It's found in Jesus and him alone. And that's something we all need to hear, not just the ladies. Because you men in the room, the reason our culture objectifies women is because of sinful men. Men are the ones who drive and sustain the porn and prostitution and sex trafficking industries. If women are going to find their worth in Christ, we as men must treat them as image bearers in Christ. This is a whole church issue. 
Let's keep going in verses 5 and 6. It says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Uh, Here we have an example giving to encourage women. And the example is Sarah. She, remember, was Abraham's wife. And we read in Genesis about their story, how Sarah followed Abraham's leadership. Even though Abraham was not perfect and he was a complete bonehead at times, she continued to obey him and call him Lord. Now, hang on a second. She called her husband Lord. Do you wives need to go home and call your husbands Lord? Everybody's, oh, let me take a, <laughs> let me take a little weight, a little burden off you so that none of you men go home and walk in the door. I am Lord. <laughs> that word Lord did not mean God. It did not mean master like we tend to think of in other contexts. This was simply another way of saying husband. It was a term of endearment a term of respect and signified leadership in their marriage. So I highly encourage you not to use it. Um, Just a different context, okay? But the idea here is that Sarah is an example for wives today, and here's why. Because she hoped in God. She isn't a model example because she was a perfect wife or her kids always perfectly obeyed or even because she submitted for Abraham's sake. No, it's because she hoped in God. And that's why she had this attitude. She was first and foremost honoring the Lord. So he's saying, be like Sarah. Adorn yourselves with good deeds. Submit to your own husbands. Do good and do not fear. That last phrase, to not fear, would have been so meaningful to these wives who were married to unbelieving men. To know that they don't have to fear their disapproval, but can honor the Lord above all. Now, Peter switches over to husbands with the last verse. Verse 7 says this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's a lot here to unpack, but here's the third principle we learn for an exile's marriage. Number three, husbands must honor their wives. First, we are told as husbands to live with our wives in an understanding way. Literally translated, that means to live with them according to knowledge. What kind of knowledge is he talking about? Well, this is the knowledge of God's will. Husbands need to know what God expects of them, what God commands them to do. And here's what God commands them to do. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Man, it's so important to understand that this is what it means for husbands to lead and be the head of their families. As I said, it's not being a dictator. It's not bossing everyone around. It's not being a jerk or overbearing or controlling or abusive. It's to be like Jesus. And how did Jesus lead people? He loved them sacrificially. He served them. He he washed their feet. He did the hardest thing. He died for them. He literally gave up his life for him. This is what a husband's leadership should look like. It's giving up yourself for your wife. 
giving up what you want and what you need for the sake of your wife and family. It's serving your family even when you're tired. It's doing the dishes, folding the laundry, changing the diapers, putting the kids to bed, and I am preaching to myself right now, okay? (laughs) It's taking burdens off her and placing them on your shoulders. It's doing hard things. It's taking initiative. It's doing whatever best serves your wife. And again, I'm preaching to myself because serving is hard. That's why it's called sacrifice. But husbands, if we don't serve our wives like Jesus, then we're not only sinning against God, we're bringing shame to the gospel. Next, husbands, we're called to show honor to our wives as the weaker vessel. This phrase, weaker vessel, has been the subject of a lot of concern and confusion. In what way is Peter calling women weaker than men? Well, I believe, as most people do, that he's referring to women as being physically weaker generally than men. And that's another concept that's not going to win you any popularity contests in the culture today. The world wants to argue that men and women are completely the same, that gender is just fluid. This is what fuels the transgender ideology. They say things like, oh, gender is not based on biological sex or on physical differences, but no, gender is based on what you feel on the inside. But that isn't just biblically untrue. It's, it's scientifically untrue. It's very easy to see that, that God created men and women differently. We have a, a daughter. She was so sweet. And then we had a son. <laughs> we see those gender differences even at a, at a young age. So, so physically, chemically, the, the bodies and hormones of guys and girls are distinct. And this actually leads to men on average being taller and bigger and stronger than women. This is what Peter means by weaker vessel. And because of the fact that women tend to be physically weaker, this makes them more prone to violence and being taken advantage of. Did you know that the overwhelming majority of violent crimes and sexual abuse and rape committed in the world today is done by men And did you know the overwhelming majority of those victims of those crimes are women? Man, what an embarrassment and a shame that is to men. So guys, we have a responsibility to honor our wives. We need to understand that as the physically stronger gender, we have an obligation to defend and protect the dignity of women. But I'm not sure we're doing a good job of that. You might say, oh, well, I've never hit a woman. I I respect women. But do you speak up when other men say demeaning or derogatory things about women? Do you laugh at the jokes? Do you listen to music or watch entertainment that objectifies women? Do you watch pornography or look at women with lust in your heart? We all have a responsibility to honor women, to promote a culture that honor women, that honors women, and that starts in our marriages. It starts in our homes with what we teach our children. Men and women are different, and this is a good thing because we each have strengths and weaknesses that complement one another. We need one another, so we don't belittle those differences. We show honor instead. And here's the ultimate reason we show honor, Peter said, They are heirs with you of the grace of life. This 
gives us our fourth and last principle. It's this, number four. Women are not inferior. The church tends to fall off two opposite cliffs when it comes to gender roles. On one side, some say men and women are equal in value, but also identical in role. In other words, there's no difference in men and women and their roles in the home and the church. Then the other side of the cliff says men and women are not equal in value or in role. They may not say it explicitly, but in the way they treat women, it's clear that they see women as less valuable than men. They're not as important in the church or in God's kingdom. Rather, their job is to support men. Look, I want to avoid both of those unbiblical cliffs, and I want to stay in the middle with the Word of God. Because what the Bible presents is that men and women are equal in value and worth, but they have been designed with distinct and different roles in the church and the home. We've already hit on those distinct and different roles, so let me just speak to the equal value and worth that we have. Christianity was radically different from the first century culture it was born into. In this time period of the New Testament, women were viewed as second-class citizens. They had virtually no rights, no status outside of the home. So for Jesus to speak to women, to allow women to follow him as his disciples and to teach women, this was radical. And it signified that women were equal to men in value and worth. And that's how the early church functioned. Women played significant roles in the church. Go read Romans 16. Paul lists out. I believe it's eight different women who help him serve in the church. Historians believe that women made up the majority of the early church because they found such freedom and significance there. So it's amazing when people say that Christianity is oppressive to women, when Christianity is actually what elevated and honored women. And not to mention that in the world today, there are more women Christians than men. So Peter's giving us this this balance in how we view gender roles. Yes, men are physically stronger than women, but they are both heirs of the grace of life. Jesus died for both men and women. He calls and empowers both men and women in his kingdom. And we need both men and women in their ministries to fulfill the Great Commission. And to put some teeth on this challenge that he gives men... He includes one more controversial phrase. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. God wants husbands to see that honoring their wives is so important that if we fail to do so, God will refuse to answer our prayers. One commentator I read, he put it like this. He said, no Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing honor on her. To take the time to develop and maintain a good marriage is God's will. It is serving God. It is a spiritual activity pleasing in his sight. God is not playing around concerning how his exiles treat marriage. Because marriage is a picture of his glorious gospel. When we do not obey and honor God in our marriages, we bring disgrace and shame to the very gospel we aim to share. It's that serious. 
But here's the good news. And here's where we'll land this plane this morning. We are not alone in our marriages. We are not alone in our calling to submit and to honor one another and display Christ. We have Jesus himself as our example. Jesus is the, the perfect reflection of all of this. Think about it. The Bible says Jesus submitted to the Father. Do you know the same word that uses to describe Jesus' submission is the same one that's used for wives? And we know Jesus wasn't less than his Father. Jesus submitted perfectly, but he also honored perfectly. He's the husband of the church, and he leads us perfectly, dying on the cross, taking our sins upon himself, and rising from the dead to give us eternal life. And through his work on the cross and at the empty tomb, we have the power of the gospel. We've been saved, forgiven, and changed. We are new people. So now whether we're married or single, widowed or divorced, we can follow Jesus and honor him in our relationships through the gospel. We can face hostility and difficulty and yet glorify Jesus through all of it. And what an example that is to a watching world. When I think about marriage, I think about my parents. They'll be married 40 years this summer. And man, what a gift that is to me. Because I know their marriage isn't perfect. I know these people. <laughs> They've had some difficult times. My, my dad's told me before, son, there were times your mom should have left me or killed me. But day after day, week after week, year after year, they kept going. Through it all, they, they honored the Lord. Even in suffering, even in exile, they glorified Jesus. Man, that's the model. In exile, if the government hates us, if our boss is terrible, if society mocks us, even if our spouse doesn't believe, we honor the Lord. Because this is our testimony. And it tells a watching world, we are strangers, we are sojourners, we are exiles, but we are the people of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.